0: Teach us today, our Lord, about knowing and worshiping you, what it does and does not involve what it does and does not mean. Alert us to the follies and landmines strewn all along the way. Warn us, we pray, train us, us, help us, guide us. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I don't know whether you noticed, but we got through the... 14th chapter of Matthew in three sermons. Now, don't expect a breakneck speed like that all the way. Uh, for instance, here, chapter 15 is going to take a bit longer, but you see we take a big bite today in the first 20 verses. We'll do that in overview, and then my plan is to return and look at a couple of aspects of it more closely. Now, I've mentioned in the past, you know, that the, when the uh, Bible writers wrote their words, they didn't write chapter 12, chapter 15, verse 1, verse 2. But you have to look in the text to see how they conceived of the design. And and we've seen many times that Matthew wrote very beautifully and very deliberately and has very much of a design to his gospel. We've seen a number of things that clue us as to his structure and what he has in mind. This section is, is no exception. He shows us that it is meant to be a self-contained section. Look at the first two verses uh, in my translation I've given you on the outline. Then come up to Jesus from Jerusalem Pharisees and scribes saying, for what reason do you disi- your disciples violate the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. Well, Jesus doesn't really answer that question. He fires back at them and then gets into a discussion of their hypocrisy and their traditionalism. And then he warns the crowds about them. And then the uh, the apostles the disciples ask him some questions and he discusses with them. But look at the end of the section, verses 19 and 20. For from the heart come out wicked arguments, murders, adulteries, immoralities, thefts, false testimonies, blasphemies. These are the things that defile the man. But this eating with unwashed hands... Does not defile the man. So you see, it's there that he returns and answers the question at the beginning of the section. You see? So this told, tells us, Matthew means us to take this as a section all contained. And it shan't surprise you much to see it, it breaks down into three parts. As Jesus has three audiences and three discussions with three different groups of people, three different scenes in this section. So let's begin through it here, looking first. At the first scene, verses one through nine, where we meet the top men. Top men. I wonder how many of you know where I get that. Raiders of the Lost Ark. At the la- at the end scene, uh, these Indiana Jones is told that the ark is being overseen by top men, and he says, "Well, who?" And he says, "Top men." and then it shifts to janitors moving boxes around. Well, these are the top men here in verses 1 through 9, and in this section we're going to learn a whole lot about what it means to worship and to know God. Letter A then, I kind of see this exchange in baseball terms. I have for a long time, and what we see then in verses 1 and 2 is we see the pitch. This is the pitch in verses 1 and 2. I've translated it for you. Then, up, then come up to Jesus from Jerusalem, Pharisees and scribes, saying, For what reason do your disciples violate the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. But first then we have the wind-up. At the start of any pitch, you've got the wind-up in verse 1. Then come up to Jesus from Jerusalem, Pharisees and scribes. Now, remember, the Pharisees were a a movement, a sect within Judaism. They were mostly laymen. They were devoted to the uh, cleanliness. In fact, the word Pharisee probably means separatist. And they were very concerned with remaining separate and clean and undefiled. And they uh, took the law of God and they hedged it around with the tradition of the elders. We'll talk about that more uh, later. But they were very fiercely devoted to this. Scribes is a different group. There was an overlap. Not all scribes were Pharisees. Not all Pharisees were scribes. Few Pharisees were scribes. Many scribes were Pharisees. What was a scribe then? A scribe was a trained man. He was uh, a scholar. He was educated in the rabbis. He could he could cite the uh, discussions of the rabbis from memory. Uh, They're called walking footnotes and famed for being able to cite rabbi so-and-such on this, rabbi so-and-such on the same thing, two or three rabbis on each thing. It's with contrast to them at the Sermon on the Mount that the people are amazed at Jesus because he teaches with authority and not like their scribes. Jesus doesn't quote anybody but God and those who misrepresent God, but he preaches the word of God. Uh, The scribes, uh, many are Pharisees, they are professionals, they're educated, and they're paired together, and they come up from Jerusalem. Now to get the the feeling of this, maybe you need to picture yourself as the owner of a small business, and one of your employees comes up to you and says, hey, there's some guys here, and you say, okay, there's some guys here. And he says, well, they're from Washington, D.C. And you go, oh. That's not good news. That means they're from the federal government. That means there could be something really nasty here. Well, that's Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the capital. What's in Jerusalem? The temple's in Jerusalem. What was Jerusalem? It was the center of worship and of the kingdom of David. Who was in Jerusalem? The Sanhedrin was in Jerusalem. So these men coming from Jerusalem, that's the big guns. That's the top men. And in all likelihood, the local Pharisees and, and scribes, unable to contain Jesus, had called up for help. They would called for an assist. And so they sent down the big boys, the boys from Jerusalem, hoping to put a stop to Jesus' movement. So, uh, you've got the pitchers wind up. We've got the delivery in verse 2. The pitcher delivers the ball. This is their big pitch right here. This is it. For what reason do your disciples violate the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. It's interesting here, Matthew doesn't really explain that. You read in Mark's gospel in chapter 7, he explains it. And the reason is simple to uh, understand. Mark is writing probably for Romans who don't know these practices. Matthew's writing for Jews who are very familiar with these practices. He doesn't need to explain them. So they violate the tradition of the elders, and we're inclined to say so, maybe unless we're Roman Catholics or Greek Orthodox in background, but so they violate the tradition of the elders. What's the difference there? Well, let me explain to you, us not being Jews, There is an idea, they had an idea that at Sinai, God gave the Torah, He gave the law, but in addition to that, He gave teaching not recorded in writing. He gave to Moses teaching not recorded in writing. This was transmitted and handed down orally from generation to generation orally down to Ezra and from Ezra down to their day. And that tradition was equal in authority to the Torah, to the law of God. That teaching was meant to clarify and set a hedge around the Torah. It's absolutely essential. I've, I've read in their writing that they say you can't just read the Torah. You've got to read the statements of the scribes, of the scholars, the sages. The intent is you've got the law of God, and these traditions set a hedge around it further to assure that the law of God is kept and is not broken. Eventually, this was codified in a body of writing called the, the Mishnah in the, uh, the late second century after Christ. But the reality was, whatever they might say in theory, the reality is that it was. Equal in authority to the actual Bible, in fact, it transcended in authority, the actual Bible. Uh, I can quote to you, one of the writings commenting on the Mishnah is the Babylonian Talmud, written, written later but recording what rabbis had thought for many, many years, perhaps going back to the time of Jesus. Here's one statement from the Babylonian Talmud. My son, be careful to fulfill the words of the scribes even more than the words of the Torah the Torah being the law of God. Anyone who transgresses the words of the law might be punished with whipping, but quote, anyone who transgresses the words of the scribes is liable to receive the death penalty. So it's a bad thing to break the law of God, but it's a really bad thing to break the teaching of the scribes. And there's another place in a a different uh, Talmud, the Jerusalem Talmud that came from the land of Palestine you can know that the words of the scribes are more pleasant than those of Scripture. So in reality, this tradition was held in veneration over the actual Word of God. But this is what tradition means. Now, the word tradition is neutral. Tradition might be good, might be bad. But in this case, it means the body of teaching, orally translated, uh, orally handed down through the generations, finally written down in the Mishnah, commented on in the Talmuds, This is equal to, in fact, sweeter than the words of God. And that's what they're talking about when they say, why do your disciples violate the the traditions of the elders? This, This held great... Um, beauty and authority to them. And, and maybe you can't understand this unless you're of a Roman Catholic background or you know Roman Catholics well or Russian or Eastern Orthodox. And, and you, they describe to you what they believe and what they practice and they say they believe the Bible but you listen to these practices and these doctrines and they're in no way related to what Scripture teaches. In fact, in some cases they straight out violate what Scripture teaches and yet they hold it in Deep reverence and, and very dear and very high and very important because to them it has this beautiful weight of authority going back to antiquity that is so much better than anything you might say simply reading the Bible to them. That doesn't that doesn't wash with them. And this is that same spirit, although it's ironic, of course, that they have this same Bible that in this passage destroys that mindset. But they live that mindset, such as blindness, until the Holy Spirit opens our eyes. That's tradition. Well, then, what's this issue of washing? Is this the Karen committee, you know, to make sure that they're keeping the, the COVID regulations? Well, it's nothing to do with COVID and it's nothing to do with hygiene per se. It's a ritual matter. It's a matter of ritual cleanness or uncleanness. It's a matter of whether you're able to approach God and worship at the temple or not. If you're unclean, you cannot. If you're clean, you can. And hand washing has a lot to do with it. You say, where's that in the Old Testament? It's not much in the Old Testament. There, there's not any general law in the Old Testament about washing your hands before eating. And the most laws about washing your hands are for priests. But here's one of the pharisaical distinctives. The Pharisees tried to take the priestly laws and apply them to people as a whole so that all people, kind of a, a, a strange version of the priesthood of the believer, except in the sense that they had to abide by priestly laws of cleanness if that they were going to worship. Remember I said they were separatists. They were all about being undefiled. And hand washing had a lot to do with that. Now, now, reason this through. If my hands are ritually unclean, not, not hygiene, but ritually unclean, and I pick up food, what happens to the food? well, it's unclean now. And I pop it into my uh, mouth, and now what happens to me? I'm unclean. And you might have said, well, weren't you already clean, unclean if your hands were, you know, don't ask. Uh, So that was the thinking there, but it was very, very important to them. Uh, A certain rabbi Akiva was imprisoned once. And a rabbi friend of his brought him some water in prison, but it wasn't a lot of water. And so the question was asked, how am I supposed to wash my hands and have enough water left over to drink? And the rabbi's conclusion was, and I quote... What can I do for transgressing the words of the scribes and eating without first washing hands one is liable to the death penalty and so if so it is better that I should die my own death by thirst rather than transgress the opinion of my colleagues who enacted that one must wash hands before eating and so he would not eat anything until he was brought enough water to wash his hands and then drink he'd rather he'd rather die of thirst than not wash his hands. Well, that is because hands were assumed to be unclean unless they were clean. <laughs> that was basically the default assumption. There was, you, you must have touched something. You touched something a Gentile touched. you touched something inadvertently, you're probably unclean. Better to rinse your hands. And, and there was a oh, there's a whole tractate called "Yhyam, hands." about how to wash and exactly how much water to use. I am not kidding you. And how to pour it. You've got to pour it so that it doesn't go back again over itself and re-defile you. You've got to pour it and let it trickle down and on and on. And, and otherwise, you're unclean. But wait, there's more. There was this idea. Now, we don't know if this goes all the way back to Jesus, but not long after Jesus, there was this idea. I am not kidding you. That there was a demon named Shivta. And this demon sat on the hands of a person who slept until he rinsed his hands. So if you wake up in the morning, you got the demon shift on your hands in addition to everything else you've got to deal with. You've got a demon sitting on your hands until you rinse your hands. And only if you rinse your hands, then I guess you wash the demon away um, is the idea there. Otherwise, you're eating hands that an evil spirit, eating food that an evil spirit has contaminated by contaminating your hands. But what's more, hand washing was seen as part of how to have eternal life. I quote this to you. have got to explain it a little bit. Language is a little dense, but from the Jerusalem Talmud. Anyone permanently in the land of Israel who speaks the holy language, Hebrew, eats its produce in purity. And how do you eat produce in purity? Rinse your hands. Anyone who lives in Israel speaks Hebrew, washes his hands, eats his produce in purity, and recites the Shema, that's here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, Recites the Shema morning and evening, is assured of his place in the world to come. In other words, how do I have each, what must I do to be saved? Rinse your hands. That's the answer. Rinse your hands, and you'll have life in the world to come. You say, wow, I'm sure glad I got a Bible and I don't believe stuff like that. Roman Catholic Church does. How many of you know what the scapular is? The scapular. How many of you, seriously, how many know what a scapular is? I see one hand. It's a garment you wear if you're Roman Catholic, and it says whoever dies wearing this garment will be spared the flames of hell. So if you die with that garment on, you're guaranteed eternal life. You're not going to go to hell. This this, This is a teaching embraced by that. Well... Uh, Sure enough, tradition, tradition. So what's their intent in bringing this up? Why do the top men go here? You'd think of all places. Well, maybe now you understand a little better. This wasn't a little thing to break the tradition of the elders. And it wasn't a little thing not to cleanse your hands. And so notice the way they phrase it. For what reason do your disciples violate the tradition of the elders? So they position themselves as representing these elders who do what? They go all the way back to Moses and therefore all the way back to God. That's who they are. They represent the elders, therefore Moses, therefore God. But your disciples violate all that. And because of that, your disciples are rebelling against God. Your disciples are unclean, probably demonic. Your disciples are not going to heaven. Why is that, they ask? So you see, it's not at all an innocent question. It's meant to get at the heart. And it's meant to show this. We produce disciples of the great tradition of Moses and of God. This Jesus produces rebels, sinners, defiled, maybe demonic, certainly lost. What's the conclusion? Don't follow him. Follow us. We'll fix you up. See, that's the play. That's the pitch. So in sails the ball towards the batter. What's going to be the response? Letter B, we have the hit. Verses 3 through 9, the hit. Let's first talk about the trajectory of this hit. (laughs) What's the trajectory? Is it a pop fly? Oh, no, 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 no. Is it a foul ball? No, 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 no. Does he ground out? Oh, not at all. No, no, no. Look at at here, and I want to read verses 2 and 3 to show you how exactly they parallel each other. They ask, for what reason do your disciples violate the tradition of the elders? And he responds, for what reason do you yourselves also violate the commandment of God? on account of your tradition. Do you see that that's an exact response, an exact wording to what they're saying? And what he does is he drives that ball straight back at them with a lot of heat on it. It comes in as a foreseen fastball, high and inside, and he blasts it. He scalds it right back at the pitcher. Uh, It's an exact response, and he is going to the heart of what the issue is. Their love of tradition has brought them out from the Word of God and not just out from the Word of God, but an actual violation of the Word of God. Yes, they love their tradition. No, they don't love God. And and doesn't this sound, doesn't this take your mind right back to the Sermon on the Mount? Well, this is it in a nutshell. You've heard it said, but I say to you, and he shows again and again that there is no superficial trickery way around the Word of God. The Word of God goes right to the heart. Jesus shows this again and again, and so He is here. Yeah, you love your tradition, and your tradition takes you into violation of the Word of God. So that's the trajectory. Blast it right back. How far does this hit go? Let's talk about the distance in number two. He hits it with such force, Jordan Alvarez could only hope. It goes all the way out of the park, out of the stadium, out of the jurisdiction. He absolutely blasts it. Look at the illustration he gives in verses 4 through 6. For God said, Honor your father and your mother, and he who maligns father or mother, let him come to his end in death. Yet you people say, and that's emphatic in Greek. It's a very stark contrast. Here's what God says. Here's what you say. You people say, Whoever says to his father or to his mother, let it be a gift for God, whatever of mine you could have benefited from, he absolutely must not honor his father. And so you nullified the word of God for the reason of your tradition. For what reason do they violate tradition? For what reason do you violate the commandment? You'd commanded, you you violate the commandment for the reason of your tradition. So Jesus, quote, it's the uh, fifth commandment here, Exodus 20.12. This is the first social commandment. The first four are God word, the next six are man word, and the first one of that set of six is honor your father and your mother, Exodus 20.12. And this was meant to be a lifelong obligation. The the, the way it shows changes as one uh, matures and marries, but um, there's no there's no expiration date to the obligation to honor father and mother. Uh, Proverbs 19.26 shows us this. He who does violence to his father and chases away his mother is a son who brings shame and reproach. This is envisioning an adult son, not a child. Proverbs 19.26. Proverbs 23.22. Listen to your father who gave you life and do not despise your mother when she is old again that's a word to an adult not a word to a child finally proverbs 28:24 he who robs his father or his mother and says it is not a transgression is the companion of a man who destroys and that one goes very much to what we're talking about right here proverbs 28:24 this is a kind of robbery this is this idea that jesus says Whoever says to his father or his mother, let it be a gift for God, whatever of mine you could have benefited from. This is the law of korban. Uh, Mark uses that word korban in Mark 6. Matthew uses the word often used in translation in Greek, doron, uh, doron, gift. He doesn't explain it, but I'd better, because this is thick. This is a little difficult to understand. Here's the reasoning of the rabbis and the scribes. The Old Testament says that gifts are to be uh, honored. Uh, we studied that back in the Sermon on the Mount. And that is certainly what the Old Testament teaches. You make a vow, you're supposed to keep it. I, make, I take an oath, I'm supposed to honor that oath. Well, what the Korban is is that, uh, and korban is the word used in the Old Testament for a gift brought to God, an offering. It's from the verb karab, to bring close. It's something I bring close to God. I offer it as a gift. Okay, well what this law is, that I at any moment might take anything of mine and say, let this be korban. I might take my Bible. I might take my bank account. I might take all my savings and say it's korban. What happens when I say it's korban? That has the effect of saying that I've taken a vow. I've made an oath. I've dedicated this to God. And you say, well, then you've got to empty out your bank account and give it to the temple, right? No, that's the beauty of it. Not necessarily. The moment I say it, it's designated for God irreversibly. But I can continue to use it. And it can go to God when I die. So, I see mom and dad coming to me, and I know that they're going to ask for help, and I know I've got help to give, but I don't want to give it. What can I do to be a good, pious Jew and still write in God's eyes? Korban. And then I can't. I can say to them in all rabbinic honesty, you know, I'd love to help you. I wish I could, but I've dedicated this to God. And so, in fact, this exact wording that Jesus uses is found in rabbinic writing. Whatever you might have profited by from me, it's a a gift to God. I've dedicated to God. I can't help you. Now, what about this wording when he says, you say that when they say that, he absolutely must not honor his father. What's that about? Well, suppose I do that, but then conscience strikes me and I realize that this is a miserably low and rotten thing of me to do. I regret it. So, I can just uncorbon that, right? No, I can't. It's inviolable. I vowed it. The rabbis say I cannot relent and take back my vow. So, I must not help them. And in so doing, I'm walking according to the teaching of the scribes, which have set this hedge around the law. But in so doing, what am I not doing? Honoring my mother and my father. And I've spoken evil to them and that these words are, are said with contempt. They're, they're said in a hostile way. They're said in a cruel way. And so I've used my mouth to harm and in, fact, in effect to rob my mother and father of the help that I should have given them. And, and ironically, the rabbis taught that you need to help your parents. But boy, you corban your savings. <laughs> you just can't do it. Sorry, just can't do it. Do you see? So here's a slick, legalistic way that they've made. Now, is there any, incha- any chance that this was God's intent? I mean, even think it through. What, suppose I made a vow to worship Baal. or a, uh, Can I make a wicked vow and expect God to hold me to that? No, wicked vows need to be repented of. They need not to be fulfilled. If I vow to murder somebody or commit adultery or steal or something, no, that's, that's a wicked vow. Well, this is a wicked vow but it's a sweet little technical legalistic loophole that they made that would protect people's income and fatten the purses uh, of the temple, you see. This is what they did. This is what their tradition led them to do and feel holy about it. Feel just fine about it and sleep like a baby. Not the wake up and cry kind of baby, but the don't wake up kind of baby. So... The conclusion then, here's what Jesus thinks about it, and of course he puts it in his usual kind, nuanced, winsome way. Verses 7-9, through hypocrites! Aptly did Isaiah prophesy concerning you, saying, this people with its lips honors me, but their heart is far distant from me. But futilely do they show me reverence by teaching for teachings... Men's rules. Well, I got good news and I got bad news, Jesus says. The good news is you're in the Bible. The bad news is it's not in a good way. (laughs) It's not in a good way. Hypocrites, he calls them. And then he applies Isaiah's prophecy to them. Well, uh, Isaiah 29, 13. What's a hypocrite? I remind you, the Greek word literally means an actor. It's somebody who puts a mask on. It's a phony. It's somebody who pretends to be something he isn't. That's the heart of it. It's somebody who acts, who pretends to be something that he isn't. And what's he pretending to be here? A godly, pious, God-centered, God-worshipping, godly, godly, godly Jew. What isn't he? That. That's not what he is at all, but that's what he pretends. Interestingly, there was a, a huge theater built by Herod Antipas at Sepphoris. Sepphoris is just about four miles away from Nazareth. And you could see performing there the hypocriti, the hypocrites, the actors. That's what that meant. So Jesus was well aware of what an actor was and what an actor did. He uses the word uh, hypocrite in the Gospel of Matthew 13 times. And it's in two concentrations. One of the concentrations is later in chapter 23, the, the chapter where he just blasts the scribes and Pharisees. But the others in the Sermon on the Mount, turn back to Matthew chapter 6 with me, And there's a little uh, concentration of the use there. Uh, I just read the Sermon on the Mount alongside this section. You you might do that same thing. and You'll see how much it illuminates this chapter. I really do recommend that to you. But Matthew 6, middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Beware of doing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them, otherwise you have no reward with your Father who's in heaven, verse 1 says. That's the essence of a hypocrite. He does something for people to see him, so they'll, they'll think of him in a certain way, but his thought's not about how God sees him. And so verse 2, he says, therefore when you give to the poor, he gives three illustrations, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do. So these are the play actors who want to be seen as great men of generosity, but that's not what's in their heart. And then again, verse 5, the second example, and when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who make gaudy, loud, public prayers to be seen by men, but they're not talking to God. You Notice always in, in movies, whenever anybody prays, his eyes are open, because they can't even conceive of talking to God in prayer. And then finally, fasting, verse 16, when you fast, put on a, don't put on a gloomy face as hypocrites do, putting on a great show of how much they're suffering for God, uh, but uh, anoint your head, be glad, and fast to God. And then one more use in chapter 7 about the person who's got a log in his eye but wants to do surgery for the speck in his brother's eye. And he says in verse 5, You hypocrite. You're so big about things and eyes, right? And you've got this log in your eye. What a phony. What a pretender. What a hypocrite. So that's what he calls them here. Play actors. Obviously, they are not about loving God and their neighbor. Obviously, when they make up and live by traditions like this, and not by the word of God, So you see why I say, he takes that four-seam fastball and he blasts it right back at them, and it goes all the way out of the stadium, and they never even knew what hit him. That hit them. That's the first scene. The second scene, letter uh, Roman numeral two. We've seen the top men. Now we leave them and we look at the tossed crowd. We'll return to them in the third scene, but uh, we're done with them for now. He turns to the tossed crowd, T O S S E D, the tossed crowd. How are they tossed? By having leaders like this. This is the teaching they've had all their lives. They look up to the Pharisees as being the godly ones, the leaders, the examples of piety in their day. And now Jesus is saying something totally different. They are tossed like sheep without a shepherd. So first they are summoned in verse ten. After calling the crowd to himself, he said to them, "Hear and comprehend." Boy, this is Jesus, and this is something about Jesus. Always talking to the mind. So many, so much. What passes for religion today is it focuses on the emotions, or focuses just on practice. But what Jesus says, He says to our minds. He, he wants us to know, to understand, to think in a certain way, to be ruled by truth. And so He says, hear and understand. This is the thing that the first soil and second soil and third soil do not do. This is what God does in judgment to the reprobate. Closes their eyes so they can't understand, cannot understand. But this is what the fourth soil does do. This is what God's elect do do. God opens their eyes and they do understand. He calls on them, hear and understand, he says. So they are summoned in verse 10, and they are parabled in verse 11. Can I make up a word? Yes, I can. All I'll do is verb the word parable. They are summoned in verse 10, and they are parabled in verse 11. Peter calls it a parable in verse 15. Why did you tell them this parable? So I didn't make that part up, though I did make the word up. (laughs) I don't think parabling is going to get into the dictionary real quick. It is not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but instead what goes out of the mouth, this defiles the man. Now, here's our first occurrence in the text of the word defile. Let me explain it to you a little bit. It's an interesting word. Uh, It's the verb koino'o. Uh, You've heard of the, probably, heard Koine Greek. That's the kind of Greek the New Testament's written in. And it means common Greek. It's not particularly academic. It's just the Greek everybody spoke. This is the verb form of that, koino. And you, you think, well, how do you get common? How do you get defiled from common? Here's how. Remember I said the Pharisees wanted to apply priestly standards to all the people. What is it to be a priest? Was to be set apart from common people to the worship and service of God, to be sanctified, you see, set apart to God. And so they wanted all people to be set apart to God, to be holy, to be pure, ritually pure in their lives. But if you violate that, then what are you? You're common. You're unholy. You're unsanctified. You're defiled, you see. And so that's, that's the idea here. They're saying that if you don't rinse your hands in the right way with the right amount of water before you eat, you're unholied, you're unsanctified, you're defiled. Jesus is saying, no, no, no. You're not defiled by what goes into your mouth, but by what comes out of your mouth. Now, Jesus explains this later, so, so will I, but I did want you to understand what He means by defiled here. Made unholy, unspecial, common. Roman numeral three then, after Jesus has spoken to the second audience, the tossed crowd, and no, no response is recorded here, uh, he's approached by the tense disciples. Now isn't that kind of an interesting uh, ebb and flow? The Pharisees approach him, he approaches the crowd, the disciples approach him. You see, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful movement. So the tense disciples approach him in verses 12 through 20. They didn't love this encounter with the Pharisees. <laughs> they didn't think that was a great thing, obviously. It made them really tight. It made them really tense, and we see it here. First, they voiced their concern in verses 12 through 14. Their concern, letter A, in verses 12 through 14. Their concern is voiced in verse 12. Then his disciples, so there's, here's the lot of them. <clears throat> they come up and say to him, Um, <clears throat> um, um. Do you not know that when the Pharisees heard that word, they were offended, they were tripped up, they were turned off, they were repelled? Do you maybe maybe not know that? God love them. <laughs> They just want to help, you know. They they can't imagine why Jesus would do this. Maybe he just didn't know. Maybe he just didn't know how how these words affected them. So they come up wanting to help. And and this just shows us in a subtle way the, the esteem in which the Pharisees were held, even by them. Why would you want to offend these people? Why would you want to offend the top men? Why would you want to turn them off? Wouldn't you want them to be in your movement? I guess maybe you didn't know how they would hear this. Now, of course, you and I look at that. We think that's a pretty pretty silly question. Every time we try to help the Lord, it's pretty silly. (laughs) Every time we try to help Him and, and, and straighten Him out, it's pretty silly. It's not better than this. But they're wanting to help. But you know what? We better not be too quick, because I hear this an awful lot today. I do mean to talk about this more in another sermon, but we hear an awful lot today that you had better not preach this or that or the other thing Because if you do, why? What's going to happen? You're going to turn people off. They're going to leave the church. You're going to alienate the young people. You're going to alienate the uh, white people, the black people. You're going to alienate the gays. You're going to alienate minorities. You're going to alienate this and that person. So you better not teach it. Now, is it in the Bible? Well, maybe we could do that in a special class, you know, or something like that. But don't don't do it in the pulpit. Don't do it out loud. You don't want to alienate people at all costs. You don't want to alienate people. And and this is obviously their assumption. I mean, why would they say this to Jesus if they thought he didn't care whether the top men were alienated? Why would they even bring that up? So they're assuming he wouldn't want to alienate them, right? Do you see that? So that's why, somebody tell me you see that. Thank you. So that's why they approach him in this way, trying to help him. You don't want to alienate these people, obviously. Maybe you just didn't know. We'll help. But their, their concern is voiced in verse 12 and then verses 13 through 14. It is vetoed. <laughs> it is vetoed. Here's, here's Jesus' response. But he in answer said, Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant will be uprooted. Leave them. They are blind guides of blind men. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into the pit. And that's interesting. What does that make you think of? Every plant not planted by my heavenly Father. What does that make you think of? What parable does that make you think of? Darnell or the wheat. It, I did it. The darnel or the wheat and the tares. God plants the wheat. The enemy plants the darnel. Well, he says, every plant my heavenly father, just like in that parable, every plant my heavenly father did not plant, the darnel, the tares, he will uproot. And this, this, this verse goes back to sovereign election, it goes to reprobation, it goes to judgment, all in this one verse. He didn't plant them, so he will uproot them. Uh, notice how winsome and nuanced and Catholic and affirming and embracing Jesus isn't. In this, I mean, he, says, he literally says, let them be. Uh, I, it doesn't matter uh, whether they, if they don't like the truth, and that tells us about them. If they don't like the truth and the truth makes them run, that tells us they are not planted by my Heavenly Father. That means they have exposed themselves. Now you see their heart in their choices. Uh, it's all, uh, it's all, uh, very Jesus to approach this way, but there are people today who think they're much smarter than Jesus. Evidently, they want to help Jesus. They don't want to talk about the things that he talked about uh, that are unpopular and that will turn people off, and that's their greatest. And again, it's assumed, And well, what you don't want to turn people off. Well, no, I, it's true. I don't want to turn people off for stupid reasons, for peripheral reasons, for unimportant reasons, but if they're turned off by God's truth, well, the way I read it, that's the way it goes, but if, if, if I am not committed to speaking God's truth, then what am I doing? I should be saying, do you want fries with this or something else? Because the whole thing is to speak God's truth, whether as a pastor or as a Christian witness. If we're not, what use are we? Do you know? Do you think about that? What use are we if we're not going to speak God's truth? What does Jesus say in Matthew 5? Let your light shine before men. city set on a hill is not, not going to hide its light. And our point is to shed the light of God's truth. And if people are offended, well, don't crow about it. Don't boast about it. Weep and pray, but it doesn't change the message. It can't change the message. It's what they need to hear. It's what God tells us to speak. So we see their concern in verses 12 through 14, and we see their confusion in verses 15 through 20. Letter B, their confusion in verses 15 through 20. Their concern was voiced and vetoed, and now their confusion. First, they phrased it as a request. Number one, they phrased it as a request. Now, notice that the first attempt was by all the disciples. They all came up and said, did you not know that they were tripped up? They were offended? They were turned off? But Jesus, put, he shut them all up, basically. So now only Peter, only Peter has the nerve to come up. And, and I, I think what I see here is he's thinking, okay, clearly, I guess we didn't understand this because I, I don't understand the play here. So we must not understand something. So he says, and this is a whole lot better. He says, explain this parable to us. That's a whole lot better than trying to tell Jesus what to do. He requests, explain this parable to us. And, and that's a good thing. He may regret it in just a second, as we'll see. But given that he doesn't understand, it's a good thing to ask Jesus to explain. And Jesus says, everyone who asks will be answered. Knock and the door will be opened. Seek and you'll find. Jesus is approached here by Peter who says, explain this parable to us. The parable, again, pointing back to verses uh, 10 and 11, where he says to the crowd, what enters the mouth doesn't defile the man. What goes out of the mouth defiles the man. They don't get that. And so he says, please explain that to us. A parable is just a pointed little saying, and, and, um, and this is how Peter uses that. So it's put as a request, and it's responded to with two questions in verses six, 16 and 20. In response to Peter's request, Jesus asks two questions. And the first question he asks is a question about them (laughs) in verse 16. Peter asking this question, Jesus says, Even yet, you men also are uncomprehending. I know they're uncomprehending. I got that. But even yet... It's a word, I think, only used here in Matthew. I'm pretty sure of that. Only here in Matthew. I think maybe only here in the New Testament. Um, if you want to wait, I'll run upstairs and check my notes, but I think that's true. And, and the, the force of the word achmein is at this point, at, at this long point, we've, we've come this far and reached this point, and you also are without without understanding, without comprehension. This is the big thing to Jesus. Comprehending, getting it. And you don't get this, he asks? Now, now we've got to notice, and and, uh, I I don't want to brush past it, Jesus doesn't sound very cuddly here. This is not the hallmark Jesus. This is not the the cuddly Jesus who's always, oh, goody, goody goody little baby. You're so sweet. Aren't you adorable? Jesus doesn't treat them that way. He treats them as people he means to grow up and learn, and progress. So, yes, the only way I see God's truth is by a sovereign work of God. I have no more part of being born again than I do in being born the first time. The Holy Spirit gives me new life. He opens my eyes to God's Word and to Christ, and and I come running freely to Him because of God's sovereign work in my heart. But then I'm meant to grow up. Peter says, like newborn babies, long, for the spiritual milk of the Word, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. I'm to grow up. I'm to dig in. I'm to chow down. I'm to grow up and learn and advance. And at this point, Jesus sees them as should be able to get this. So He means us to grow and He's serious about it. Are we serious about it? Are we using the means? We don't understand Acts. Are we in the Sunday school that teaches Acts? We don't understand how the church began. Are we in that class that's teaching that? Are we going to the ladies' Bible study and learning about the Old Testament that we don't understand about? Or the, the gospel we don't? Are we using the means that we've got available? Jesus means us to grow. He doesn't mean us to stay babies. He means us to grow. So he asks a question about them. and, letter, and number Verse 17, he asks a question about food. This is just a simple question about food. He says, do you not perceive that everything which goes into the mouth passes into the belly, and then into the privy it is expelled. Privy is the the toilet, the latrine. Uh, It's a Greek word that literally means the away seat. I think you can figure that one out without my explaining it to you. But the privy, it goes into the privy, and that's the heart of it. Food is just food, and it goes through you. And here he's moving from the ceremonial to the moral—that's where he's going to talk about now, the moral and the spiritual. But as, as Mark notes, when he talks this way, he's declaring food clean. Uh, there was in the Old Testament many laws about about diet and about foods that could defile you and foods that were acceptable. And sadly, bacon was one of those no-nos. Uh, but but Jesus declares food clean. There is no Christian diet. There is nothing that we are that a Christian can say, I don't eat this because of the Bible. No, Uh, all foods of God are good and to be accepted because they're sanctified by the Word of God in prayer, Paul says. And Peter was shown this, and this is the New Testament's teaching. So he moves from there, and he talks about what comes out of the mouth. So he asks them a question about them. He asks them a question about food. And then he responds to them with the truth about defilement in verses 18 through 20. The truth about defilement in verses 18 through 20. Now, here is the answer to the Pharisee's question. After he'd knocked them around the park a little bit, he does just like he said he was going to do. He teaches his disciples. They weren't interested in truth. But the things going out of the mouth come out from the heart, and those things do defile the man. For from the heart come out wicked arguments, murders, adulteries, immoralities, thefts, false testimonies, blasphemies. <laughs> wow, I mean, does it kind of strike you that he just described what the Pharisees do about him? Except you don't right away see the immorality thing. But, but false testimony, wicked arguments, they end up murdering him on false testimony as they blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Yikes. But he's not talking about just the Pharisees. But, but yeah, they got clean hands. <laughs> they got well-rinsed hands. But this is their heart. This is what comes, comes out of their heart. So are they clean or are they defiled? Well, they're defiled. And, but I want to, make to you, I want to make the point to you, and this is very important, this is Jesus' comment about man. This is not just the Pharisees. This is all of us as we're produced by, as sons of Adam, sons and daughters of Adam. This is what comes out of our heart. This is very um, telling to me as a... Pre-Christian and as a new Christian. Because I was, as I've shared with you, I was in a cult um, whose belief, uh, like many uh, false teachings believe, that, that God is, you know, in all and through all and that we all are simply manifestations of God. We're all Christ. We're all sons of God. God is in all of us. And the way for us to know God is to go within, to look within ourselves. We look within ourselves and we'll find God in ourselves And as I got into myself and got to know myself, it did not look like God. (laughs) What I found in my heart did not look like God. But the teaching of this cult was that that's what Jesus believed. Jesus believed, you know, because we pray our Father, so that means right there. Everybody's a child of God. We've talked about that. That's not what he's saying at all. But here's what Jesus believed about men. Did, Did Jesus believe that all men were just little manifestations of God, pure and righteous and just bright, shiny light? No, this is what Jesus says about our heart. This is what Jesus sees in our heart. This is what comes out of our heart, and this is our problem. How much water does it take to rinse this away? There's not enough water in the entire planet to wish to wash this away. There's no detergent in the entire planet that can wash this away because it's not on our hands. The demon isn't in our hands, it's in our hearts. We need, if we're going to be clean before God, we need something that can wash our hearts. And, and see, that's the whole damning thing about tradition. That is, that is, in fact, the masked poison of tradition. Tradition teaches that if we work the right formula and we do the right external things, check the right boxes, well, then we're good with God no matter what's going on inside our hearts, no matter who we are and what we are. It doesn't matter because we've got it all taken care of. And we've been assured because this is the teaching of the ages. This is the teaching of our venerated uh, ancestors, the ancients. And we're assured that this is the real stuff. And so we're fine with God. But Jesus says, well, this is in your heart. What of what that is going to do about anything about what's in your heart? What about, any of, what about all of those rituals is going to do anything about what's coming out of your heart? And I, again, I say we see this in the Sermon on the Mount again and again. And that's not what God cares about. What He cares about is our heart. And so here He responds to the Pharisees. The Pharisees are concerned about the wrong thing. They're concerned about the wrong thing. And He really lays into them in chapter 23 about that. They're great about cleansing the outside, but inside they're full of robbery and and lusts and hatred. So this is the point. This is the masked poison of tradition. There's two big issues then in this passage, and the two big issues are defilement and worship. I mean to talk more about worship in a future sermon. I'll focus on that, but let's end this time thinking about defilement. No defiled person will see God. Can a heart like that come in the presence of God? Can a heart like that spend eternity in God's kingdom? Will God's kingdom kingdom be filled with people whose hearts are full of uh, wicked arguments and murders, adulteries, immoralities, and so forth? Well, then it would not be the kingdom of God. So how do you have a cleansed heart? Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Uh, That's great. I see the need of a pure heart. My heart's not pure, though. What can I do to have a pure heart? You say, I can't wash my hands I wash my whole body? No, that won't do anything for my heart. How do I have a pure heart? Well, the Bible gives the answer to that question. It gives the answer to that question. We find it in Hebrews 9, verses 13 through 14, which talks about the relation of the Old Testament, the Torah to the new, Hebrews 9, 13, and 14. The author says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling, those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh. So this is how I have ritual purity that I can approach the tabernacle or the temple. There is a ritual for that, to be ritually pure. But then he says, If that will do that for your body, verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. There it is. There's the one and only detergent by which I can have a pure heart. Not all the water in the universe, but the blood of Christ can cleanse my conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So the question is, has that blood cleansed you? Has that blood cleansed you? And if not, I just urge you with all my heart, don't waste any more time. You don't have anything more important to do. Make peace with God through Christ. Turn from your sins to Christ. Trust in Him. Look to Him. Call on Him to save you. Talk to me and I'll be glad to talk with you about what that means and do anything I can to help you towards Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for This word, we thank you for your son, his fearless truth-telling. And we pray that these words will pierce our hearts to the very depths, and in so doing will bring us to you. Remembering that it's not all the show in the world, it's our hearts that you're after. And all the human ideas in the world are of no use. Your word tells us what you think, what you want, what you call for, what you give. We thank you for that, and we pray that you'll impress these words on us. And we do pray for any lost person, that that person will see his need of Christ and that he'll allow nothing to distract or delay him from running to Christ for life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand if you can, and we will close by singing together the first two verses of All Heaven Declares. Jesus, who searches the heart and the mind, strengthen us to walk before him in reverent love from the heart at all times, not by lips alone. Amen. Go in grace.